Welcome to the podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Arlington Heights. Our sermon series is called Parallax, where we're going to be looking at topics from the Bible from two different perspectives. I hope you enjoy. So our first scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 36. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only one it has reached? This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. (laughs) Our second scripture reading, (laughs) moving on, (laughs) is from Romans 16, 1 through 7. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at... Oh, I should have looked that up ahead of time. Sennacherib, right? So that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the churches in their house. Greet my beloved, Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we are doing a sermon series that's called Parallax which of course sounds like a sci-fi film, right? Um, And it actually is a term that's used in science. It comes from the Greek word parallaxis, which means alteration. It's used in astronomy when uh, scientists are looking at stars, and it's the idea that you can be looking at an object, but it can look different based on the position from which you are viewing it. So in this particular picture that we've created, you can see that you have a sun on two sides of a tree. So let's say you are in a field, And in that field, you were standing to the left, and you were watching the sunset. Well, it would look as though the sun was setting to the right of the tree. But if you move to another side of the field, right, and you're looking at the sunset, it would look as though it's setting to the left of the tree. The idea being that you're looking at the exact same sunset, but it appears completely different depending on where you're looking at it. So the goal of this series, a parallax, is basically two people looking at the exact same thing, but they're seeing it in completely different ways ways. And we want to talk about how that is true of the Bible. That essentially, you can look at the Bible and you can be reading the scripture and come away with completely different interpretations of what it means. The Bible is written over a period of 800 years. It's got 66 books. There's a lot of stuff in there. You can justify just about anything you want to believe based on the Bible. And that's what we're going to show to you in our sermons. And so the idea is is that every week there's going to be two preachers. There's going to be myself and either Judy or TC. Last week, TC and I, we preached about forgiveness. And today, as you might have been able to tell, we are going to be talking about women in worship. So Judy, come on up. And 
I want to begin by saying that Judy, of course, is going to be talking about why women should be leaders in the church, why they should be pastors, why they should be able to preach, and I will be speaking against that idea. Now, before you get mad at me, (laughs) I want you to know that I do not actually believe the things I'm going to be talking to you about, okay? I work in a denomination where we ordain women. I'm very proud to work with an amazing female pastor in Judy, and so I just want you to know that even though I'm going to be arguing these things, I don't necessarily believe them to be true. Now, That said, I'm going to turn to my supporting scripture for today from 1 Corinthians, which there's not a whole lot of subtlety behind it, as you saw when we read it, right? But I do want to provide you with a little bit of context. Of course, context is, you know, the thing that I I love, right? So, okay, the thing we have to understand is where this church is located. It's located in Corinth, which is in Greece. And you can see from the map here, If we zoom in on this and we can see the satellite photo, you see it's this narrow strip of land that basically has two gulfs next to it. Now this made it an ideal trading point in the ancient world because there were two ports on either side of it. And so what could happen is you would have two ships that would come in from either side, from the east to the west, and they would do all of their trading. Now, classical Corinth was extraordinarily wealthy. They were known for their black-figured pottery, and people would come from all over the world, the ancient world, to come to this place. It was bustling. It was a hub of social and economic activity. It was really, really quite amazing place to be. And so, does that help you to understand why Paul would want to plant one of his churches in Corinth, right? It's like a really great place to be. So he plants his church there. And what you have to appreciate is that it was a very diverse church. It was a church that had people from all kinds of different backgrounds. So you had wealthy, you had poor, you had educated and non-educated. You had people who were free, people who were slaves. And this diversity, it didn't come without its problems. Because what happens, as humans are apt to do, I think you all are probably aware of this, they started breaking off into factions. Now, one of these factions was claiming authority because they were able to speak in tongues. Now, have you heard that before, speaking in tongues? Are you aware of this idea? Okay, if you've never seen it before, you've never heard it, I want to show you a short 10-second clip of what speaking in tongues sounds like and looks like as the least scary one I could find and uh, just so that you have a little sense of what it's like. So let's listen to that. Yeah, it's about right. That's, uh, that's what I sound like to my children when I preach. <laughs> Just babble, right? All right, so what's important for you to understand is that speaking in tongues is not unique to the Christian faith. We are not the first group of people to ever speak in tongues. In fact, speaking in tongues predates Christianity by quite a bit. So what's important for you to understand is that in the ancient world, right, what they believed to be true is that the gods spoke different languages than humans. 
and that the gods could use humans as these instruments or vessels through which they could communicate messages from the divine realm. So long before Paul ever established his church, there were these mystery cults all over the ancient Mediterranean. And what people would do is, like let's say you were living back then, you would go to these mystery cults and you would speak in tongues. And the priests would interpret those tongues and they would give you prophecies about your life, about the future of what was going to happen to you. And the more accurate your predictions, the more you would get paid as a priest. Now many of the people who ran these mystery cults were women. And what you find in the section that we read from 1 Corinthians is that that comes right after Paul is talking about speaking in tongues. And so what many of the scholars believe happened is that you had these women in the Corinthian church who were interpreting people, the babble that you were hearing right there, they were interpreting it, and they were coming to conclusions that contradicted Paul's own teachings, which is what inspired him to say women should remain silent in the churches. Now, whether this idea should be applied to all churches is something that I'm going to come back to in a little bit after my esteemed colleague, Reverend Judy Hockenberry, has an opportunity to talk about her scripture from Romans. So for those of you that were here last week, you uh, know that TC memorized his part of the sermon set a very high bar, annoyed me, no end. <laughs> so what I am going to do is deliver my entire sermon from memory in tongues. <laughs> and then we're gonna see where TC's at next week. <laughs> no, uh, seriously, both uh, the letter to the Corinthians and the letter to the church at Rome are universally believed to have been written by Paul. Um, and in fact, most scholars date those letters at the height of Paul's church planting career, which would have been between 54 AD and 58 AD. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, however, in these letters, Paul speaks, as Alex just pointed out, against women in Corinth having any leadership, but yet he doesn't mention that in his letter to the Romans. Paul is being very inconsistent. But as Alex has told us already, context is everything. The reason that Paul doesn't speak to the church at Rome about the role of women is because he doesn't have any problem with women at the church in Rome. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, let me say again that Paul, while Paul wrote both these letters, and there's very little doubt that he did, in the letter to the church at Rome, Paul doesn't say anything about women except, as I will talk about later, to praise women. Context, again, is everything. I, uh, just a few months ago, had a conversation with a woman from our congregation who said to me, you know, it must be um, pretty easy for you to preach at our church. After all, you have a whole deep file drawer of sermons to choose from. Because for the close to 30 years before I came here, I was a solo pastor, and I did preach almost weekly. 
I laughed when she said that. And I said, yeah, I do. I have several file drawers worth of sermons. But I don't use old sermons when I'm preaching at this church. The reason is because the context of this congregation is very different from the other churches that I've served. And it's early in the 21st century, and things are changing so rapidly that our social culture is also changing, demanding that when I preach, I address the cultural changes and the needs of this congregation. So having established that Paul has written both these letters and that they are very different, I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to ask Alex to answer that question. And the question is, given that Paul's written the letters, um, uh, how, and given that they're different in terms of his instructions to women, how can we ever know what Paul really thinks and believes about women in leadership in the church? Hmm. Okay, so she has, so it's a, it's a tough question. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy one to answer. So she's, she's asking basically, given that he's inconsistent, do, can we really know what he ever thought about women in worship? And you're right. I'm glad that you actually talked a little bit about how he deals with things <coughs> differently based on their context because that does make a difference. So if we're going to drill down into your question, we have to ask, where did Paul get his ideas from? Like, where, where did those ideas come from at all? And so who was Paul? Paul was what? He was a Jewish man, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, is that he understands the world through what? A Jewish, Jewish lens. Like, that's how he sees everything. Now, there are some scriptures. What, what was his Bible? His Bible was what? It was, it was not, he didn't have a New Testament, right? He's writing the New Testament right now, right? So, so what did he have? He had the Old Testament, the Torah, mostly the first five books of the Bible, right? And there are some instances in that of equality between men and women. Certainly, there are some things. However, in practice, first century Judaism was a patriarchal religion. Now, what is a patriarchy? A patriarchy is a system of society or government where men hold the power and women are largely excluded from it. So, this assertion from Paul that women should be silent in churches, it's based on long-standing notions of a hierarchy of human authority. And you can see this hierarchy in Genesis 2 through 4. So, for instance, who's the first person that God creates in the, in the Garden of Eden? Adam. Adam, right? Adam is a male. He's formed out of what? The clay of the earth, right? Okay. Then who comes next? Eve. Eve, he comes from, she comes from the rib, right? The rib of man forms, forms that. And then as a result of their union, you end up having children. So the hierarchy goes what? Men, Men. women, Men. children. Now, did Genesis create or cause this hierarchy? No, it just existed at the time. It's a reflection of that hierarchy. And that's because men protected their wives and their children generally via war and battle, and so men became dominant in the society. And as a result of that, they have that reflected in the scriptures. Now today, I think many people would argue that a patriarchal society is outdated and should be abandoned. However, 
One could argue that our goal as Christians is to live as Jesus lived. And so Jesus, he was Jewish, right? He lived in a patriarchal society in the first century in the same cultural norms as Paul. And so one could argue, if they wanted to, (laughs) that the church should attempt to retain those cultural norms. Not society at large, but the church should try to retain those cultural norms so that we can more closely mirror how Jesus lived during his lifetime and to live as Jesus lived. It's hot in here a little bit, you know? I don't know, I feel like there's like Feeling a little steam. I feel, yeah. Feels a little warm. Yeah. Patriarchy and women being subject to men is no longer a really good politically correct topic, Alex, in case you didn't know that. (laughs) So Alex pulls up the point that we should live as Jesus lived. And I 100% agree with that in terms of Jesus' own behaviors. So Jesus invites us to a way of love, to care for widows and orphans, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to work for justice among all people. The patriarchal hierarchy that Alex spoke of is not something that God established. It was established for the good of culture. God, in fact, created all of us, male and female, in God's own image. In our baptism, we're all given gifts, gifts for ministry of all kinds. And when you think about it, we don't have different words we say when we baptize baby girls versus baptizing baby boys. They're getting that same water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit is coming into them and bringing out gifts for them to use in whatever way they feel called. In his letter to the Romans, Paul names several women. I do want to share that this is a very familiar text to me because in my husband's grandfather's family, all of the brothers and sisters were named based on Romans 16. So my husband had an Uncle Hermas, an Aunt Persis, and his grandfather was Rufus, just in case you think those names are never used. (laughs) But the people I want to emphasize are people like Phoebe. Paul writes and asks that Phoebe be greeted because she's been so helpful in the ministry. She's been a great benefactor. And in fact, she's a deacon. And that word deacon can be translated as minister. He also talks about greeting Andronicus and Junia because they knew Christ even before Paul did. And they were in prison with Paul. And the apostles think highly of them. So in those words, Paul opens the door just a little bit to consider the fact that there were female apostles. The apostles are typically considered to be those first 12 men that followed Jesus. And in fact, a lot of the hierarchy in the church, the patriarchal hierarchy, is established based on apostolic succession as well as the the words in 1 Corinthians. 
because through the ages, after Paul's letter to the Romans, where he's praising all these women, Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe and Mary and Persis and uh, Junia, still the church went back, second, third century, and focused on the idea of men in leadership roles. And this still gives women a hard way to go. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't ordain women to be priests. It's 2019. The Southern Baptist Church doesn't ordain women. The Presbyterian Church of America, another Presbyterian denomination, doesn't ordain women. And many other churches don't ordain women. Now, most of you know that I grew up in this church. I first believed that I heard the call to ministry at the age of 14. I thought in my head about what I was going to be when I grew up, and a still small voice said to me, you could be a minister. But the first question I asked myself is, are women even allowed to be ministers? This was the early 70s. I was active and in church every week. But the people I saw in front leading worship were all men. My middle school teachers and high school teachers, all men. My mentor, when I was going to join the church in eighth grade, was a male elder. And so, and I have a deep image in my brain of men, maybe 16 or 18 men, in suits, shirts, and ties, lined up along the center aisle of the pews in the sanctuary, holding the silver trays, preparing to serve communion. All men. Mm. Okay, so. <laughs> she, set me, she set me up real nice on this one. So. Uh, so basically, I would agree with you. I'm going to go back into the Bible here because that's a better place for me to be in this particular instance. Um, so, uh, so if we go back to the Bible, I would say that you're correct in pointing out that Paul, particularly in this verse up here, he's, he's, he's pointing out that there are women who are prominent among the apostles, could be even an apostle themselves, right? And it's clear, I would agree also, that women were among Jesus's cohort. We see that actually in the Gospels, that, that they're there. The issue is, is that when we come to the early church, the earliest church, like when the church first forms, there are three men who run it, right? There's James, Jesus's brother. There's Peter, Jesus's friend. And John, the beloved disciple. Those three guys do run the church. And what we see in Paul's letter to the Galatians, when he's trying to be recognized as an apostle, because what's the apostle? It's the people who were with Jesus, with right? Jesus. If he mm -hmm. wants to be recognized as an apostle, he needs to get those guys, those three guys need to give him their blessing. And so if our goal as a church is to be like what it was during the early church, then I think that Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians do have some validity. Now, you could further bolster this argument if you wanted to, if you wanted to, by saying that the church has always been a place where the teachings of the Bible take precedence over the movements of culture. 
So let me give you an example of that. So in the New Testament, what you find <coughs> is that there's all of these people converting in the early days of the church over to Christianity. And a lot of the Gentiles, now what's a Gentile? A Gentile is what? Non-Jew, non right? So these are not Jewish. This means they were pagan. So the way that you worship pagan gods and goddesses is that you would go to the temple and you would literally pay a temple prostitute and you would sleep with them. That was how you worshipped God. That was the way you worshipped those gods and goddesses. Now, that was culturally normative at the time. And the church came out and took a stand against the culture and said, that is not the right way for us to worship God. So you could transpose that argument from back then to today if you wanted to and say, even though we as a society here in the United States and in other parts of the world have worked very, very hard to give equal rights to women in society and the workplace, that in this particular instance, that the church should take a stand against the culture because that's not the right way to worship God. Now, I'm going to stop there. And I don't feel comfortable going any further with that <laughs> argument at all. But that's where I'm going to stop. And I'm going to pass it back to Judy and let her have the last word. So before I go any further, I want to just be clear um, that Alex, although he can give me a very hard time, he is an outstanding colleague, as is TC. We work well together. I feel respect for my years in ministry. I feel respect for the way I do ministry, practice ministry. <clears throat> Neither Alex or TC ever make me feel like there's an issue related to how the three of us do ministry that is dependent on gender, male or female. One of them can do it better because they're male, I'm female. I've never felt that way. I love working with both of these men. So I want that to be clear. But now that I've said that, I'm gonna share just a couple <laughs> stories. <laughs> I find it interesting that Alex said, as he ended his paragraph, I'm going to let Judy finish the sermon. Mm, yeah, Bob. I got him on that one, didn't I, Bob? <clears throat> Here's the male head of staff allowing the female associate to have the last word. But it's not the first time it's happened, and it won't be the last. In 1992, I was serving a church in Syracuse, New York. I was about seven months pregnant with our son, Andrew, and I got a call uh, from a parishioner that someone had been hospitalized and was in very, and was very, very sick, and I should go to the hospital. So I headed over to uh, Krauss Irving Memorial Hospital, which was a downtown hospital in Syracuse, and I walked in toward the reception desk, seven months pregnant, keep in mind, and I said to the nice volunteer woman that was there, I'm here to see so-and-so. And she looked up the number in her papers, not on the computer, <coughs> and said, <coughs> excuse me, oh, he's in ICU, and that's for family only. I looked at her, and I said just as nicely, I'm the pastor for the family, and they've called me to come. Oh, 
she said, as she looked down, busily looking through her papers again. I guess they come in all shapes and sizes these days. <laughs> in 1994, Ken and I left Syracuse, New York, and headed to Beulah Presbyterian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, where we had the privilege of serving for 10 years as co-pastors. We were called there as co-pastors. When our names were first presented to the session as the candidates to be coming, there was a woman by the name of Ruth Reuter, and she was a force to be reckoned with, who said very clearly, people will leave this church if any form of a woman comes. Ironically, Ruth Reuter was the first female principal in the Jefferson County Public School District in the early 1980s. But that was her attitude about women in the church. Ken and I did accept that call, and people did leave the church, and people also joined the church, because as anybody who's been Presbyterian longer than five minutes knows, that's what happens when a new pastor comes. People come, people go. A few months into our ministry, Ken and I were concerned about a couple that had been very active that we weren't seeing as frequently in worship. We knew that they had an issue with women as pastors, and so we decided to go together to visit this couple on one afternoon. We made the appointment, we got to their house, we were greeted with the typical southern hospitality, a glass of ice-cold sweet tea, and we were welcomed to sit down. We talked for close to an hour about the church, about our view of the church, their view of the church, and then as the conversation was wrapping up, Helen Crawford looked at my husband and said, you know, Ken, we're really glad you came to Beulah. And we're glad that you brought Judy and the children with you. But I just can't help but think it would be easier if Judy would just sit in the pew with the children. The children were two, four, and seven. And oh my goodness, yes. It would have been so much easier to sit in the pew with my children, who were often either in the nursery or farmed out to other families during worship. But the fact of the matter is God had given me a call, and I could no more turn my back on my call to ministry than I could on my call to be a wife and a mother. God didn't say to me, go be a minister until you have a kid. God said, go and be a pastor. And so I was. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my ministry, a lot of downs, a lot of struggles, mostly caused by that misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians where Paul tells women that they need to simply be quiet. But Paul also is the author of the church, of the letter to the church in Galatia. And in that letter, Paul says very clearly, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one. All are one. We are unified. We aren't the same. We aren't even necessarily equal in the talents we possess, but we are one in God's name. God is love, and love will win. In 1 John it says, God is love, and those who abide in God abide in love, and God abides in them. That's my bottom line, love. God abides in us, whether we are male or female, trans, uh, heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, any different color, speak any different language. It's about love and the love of God that abides in each of us as individuals. As Alex mentioned in the announcements, I didn't really know about this gift for Jenny until recently, and I'm very touched by it. I'm also touched by your support of me as a minister. This congregation has always been home to me. I have felt unconditional love and acceptance here since I was a very little girl, and I endeavor to help all people feel that way. But even sitting right here today, I know that there are people here that are very happy that I'm here as an associate pastor. Had I come as head of staff, some may have felt differently about my presence. And that's the truth for some. Next week, Ken and I go, and we get to see our daughter ordained to ministry. This is something I actually prayed would never happen. <laughs> but I know Jenny and her call is firm. Her call is absolutely firm because she grew up in a house with two Presbyterian ministers. And so she's seen the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly sides of ministry. Now Jenny goes into ministry as both a woman and as a gay woman. She is currently serving a chaplain. It is her desire to someday serve a congregation. But she knows that will be a struggle to find the congregation that is open to calling her based on her gifts and talents for ministry and not on who she is as a woman and as a gay person. But Jenny and I, we talk a lot these days, a lot more than we used to, and we still have a lot of hope. Because, friends, here's the last word. This church, every church, it belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And God will work God's purposes out regardless of our misunderstanding, our misinformation, and our sinfulness. God will work God's purposes out using men and women in all shapes and sizes. Thank you, Alex, for being such a great colleague and for giving me the last word. <laughs>
And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.